0: Thanks for listening to one of our Sunday messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 9.15 and 10.45 a.m. To find out more about our church or to connect with any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you follow Jesus. Amen. Grab a seat, everybody. How are we this morning? Good. I am so Happy to be here. Last week I was out sick. Saturday morning early I woke up and uh, I didn't eat solid food for about three and a half days. So we'll leave it at that. And Nick filled in and did a great job. Somebody this morning stopped me and said, Charlie, last week we beat the Baptist to lunch. And I said, That was last week. We're in Colossians 1, everybody. Uh, Let me tell you what we're going to do this morning and how we're going to get there. Just up top, I'm going to be unabashed about the fact that I'm going to talk about my kid a lot this morning. Because you missed a week's worth of stories last week. I'm going to start talking about her. I'm going to end talking about things we do together. Because she's adorable and it sells. You know what I'm talking about? So one thing actually came across this this week. Some of the staff found it. This was us last year at her first trunk or treat. You're not saying all loud enough. That's okay. I'll let it slide. Thank you so much. Appreciate you. She's a little baby tiger, everybody. Uh, This year, she's going to be a sloth, so bated breath. All right. Uh, This was us last year, and, and why I bring this up is because we're in a series on Colossians, and really the first 14 verses in Colossians, what we're doing is looking at how specifically Paul wants the church the body of people, the individuals that think that Jesus is Lord, how he wants the church to influence their lives. He's saying, here's the ways in which when you live out your faith together as the church, you should be influencing each other. In the first week, we talked about in the first two verses, the influence of grace. It's first and foremost what happens when we come together and talk about Jesus. And the second week, and what that picture was for was, and it's what's coming off of, because we pick up in verse 9 today, and he said, for this reason also, from the day we heard about you, we've not ceased praying for you. What he's saying there is he's referencing what we talked about two weeks ago. And he's saying that part of the influence is thanks that we are doing this together. The church in Colossae, if you remember, was a small church in a dying city that in three centuries wouldn't even be there anymore, the city as a whole. And so he's saying, I know it looks like you don't have much to give thanks for, but believe me and trust me, you do. You spur on thankfulness in me because in a, in a country controlled by Rome that doesn't recognize Jesus as Lord I get to know that there are other people out there that see the world in which the way that I see the world. I get to know and celebrate that people know Jesus like I know Jesus. And no matter where you are, and in this context, he hadn't even met him. And no matter who you are, the fact that I know you exist wells up thankfulness inside of me. And so we just said, if we're coming here every Sunday morning and we're not leaving more thankful than when we walked in, we are not doing our jobs and we are not fully influencing each other towards the purposes and the ways that the church was created and designed for, then Trunk or Treat for me is awesome. I get to walk around, show off my kid, and be thankful that I get to call this church home. And say that I have these people that in the good days and the bad days remind me that we have something that we don't see that's better and worth pursuing. It's gorgeous and it's beautiful. And so Paul continues in his chat to this church in Colossae and he says, I'm going to move on to something else that's a prayer for you. So he says in verse 9, for this reason also from the day we heard about you, we haven't ceased praying for you. And then he moves into something more specific. That word prayer there is a really general word for prayer in the Greek. It just means thinking essentially good thoughts and blessings for you. I pray for you like I pray for all my friends. I pray that God might bless you and keep you and sustain you and give you joy. But then he says, and asking God. And now what he's doing is moving into a more specific prayer. He says, I I pray for you, but specifically when I think of your community of believers that is brand new to the faith, that doesn't have a lot to go on right now, here is my specific prayer for you guys. And the next three verses we're going to walk through, three and a half, really talk through Paul's specific prayer for this church. And what he's going to call them to do is he's going to call them to grow up into maturity a little bit. So one thing we have to recognize is that anybody who comes to faith and follows Jesus. Anybody who begins to follow Jesus starts as what Paul would call in the scriptures, a baby Christian. You might have heard it said before, he references it in 1 Corinthians 3. Brothers. I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly. mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you are not yet ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready. There is this progression or there's this growth. We call it big word sanctification in the Christian life. That where you start is hopefully not where you will end next month, year, decade. Where you start is not where we ultimately will end because we push and hope for something bigger and better that Jesus is doing in our midst through the power of the Holy Spirit. What he's saying is, essentially here, is that when we start off as Christians, we start in a place that we grow from. You haven't arrived yet. And and I see that in different ways, right? I see that in big ways, like we don't know who God quite is yet because we're just beginning. I see it in small, little petty ways sometimes, you know? I had a friend of mine, She used to, during sermons, she had this big Bible, and she's an artist, and she's really, really good. And she used to draw these amazing pictures in this really big Bible around what kind of the word of the Lord was speaking to her. It was like her act of worship during the sermon. And she said people used to stare at her like she was offending God, right? Because one, she wasn't listening to the pastor, which does offend God. And two... um, people would, people would to look at her drawing in her Bible and they wouldn't quite understand how she could respect the word of God and draw on it at the same time. And I'd say that's a maturity issue. That was her way of worshiping. And we hold on to these things because the power of the scripture is not in what you hold in your hand because there are copies of those that come and go. It's in the intent and the Holy Spirit working through the pages of the scriptures that you have, regardless how many copies of the Bible you have on your shelf or in your phone. And so Paul calls them to grow up. Because what he says and what he acknowledges at the beginning is that you were babies in Christ. And so what I want to do today is talk through two reasons why it's not okay to stay a baby in Jesus. One at the top and one at the very end. And I found this description of a baby really fantastic this week. It says, a baby is a digestive apparatus with a loud noise at one end and no responsibility at the other. <laughs> Man, coming off of a family sickness. Oh my goodness. I read that. I put my pen down and I just said, oh, this is so good, <laughs> (laughs) that spoke to my soul, man. Um, I will say, the reason why I like this is because it shows us there's a lot of beautiful things about babies. There's a lot of bad things about babies. If a 30-year-old is acting like a 3-year-old, we can all acknowledge that something's wrong. That something has gone wrong. And not just physically, but spiritually. What Paul's doing is saying, you're new to this. And that is good, great, and grand. It gives me joy. But my prayer for you is about more than your present state. My prayer for you is that you won't stay where you're at. And it's beautiful. And that's our text today. But before we get into it, we're going to pray a little bit. Because I think it's really difficult for us in the current culture that we sit in um, to recognize the value of growth. Because I think growth is really difficult. I think we live in a culture of convenience. And I love that we do. We have microwaves and Easy Mac and Instant Ramen. and, And those are great things. But growth is hard and it takes time. And I think there are so many systems fighting against growth because it's really easy to show up or to click something or to go online and and not press in and do the hard work that Paul's going to talk about, about growth. And so my prayer today is that our influence might be what he's praying, might influence the people in Colossae, that we leave with a passion and a desire to grow up our faith because it's good for us. So before we get into it, two goals every Sunday, we want to know and experience God. What that means is we open the scripture together and we read about God. And two, as we read about God, it does something in our spirit, and it slowly makes us look more like Jesus, and it slowly grows God's influence in our day-to-day, and that's worship. (laughs) And so when we gather in spaces like this, when we read the scripture together, it's just not you listening, it's you interacting with the spirit of God, asking God how he's growing you this morning. It is a two-way street that we're playing today. And so we're going to take some time and just get our hearts right. I'm going to ask that you pray for yourself, that the spirit of God might speak in your spirit this morning, that we might grow. And I'm going to ask that you pray for me, that I might do a good job um, as we teach and proclaim the word of God. So let's pray together. God, I'm thankful for, (laughs) I really am truly thankful to be here this morning. I'm thankful that we can gather together and open your scriptures and and know you. Holy Spirit, I, I pray that you move inside of our spirit this morning as your word promises that you show us where we need to grow and you shape our spirit into the the ways and rhythms of Jesus. And so I'd ask if you're comfortable, just take a couple of seconds and to yourself, just ask the Holy Spirit to do something this morning to, to encourage you and to challenge you as we read the scriptures. then I'd ask that you pray for me, that I might do a good job, that it's not my words that proclaim the truth of God, but by the power of the Holy Spirit that we see change and God's influence grow, and that I might accurately depict the character of God that we see on the canvas of the pages of Scripture this morning. all these things in the mighty name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. amen. We're in it together. Open your Bibles. If you've got one, Colossians chapter 1. We're going to throw some things on the screen this morning. We have a large chunk of Scripture today, and we're going to move through it pretty quickly. It's one sentence in the Greek, and it's kind of in the middle of another prayer that Paul has. And so what I want to do as we start is I want to kind of look at the whole thing, read it, and then talk about the sections we're going to deal in to give us some structure. So As a whole, verses 9 through 12, let's read it, I'll read it to you. It says, For this reason, we also, from the day we heard about you, have not ceased praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you may live worthily of the Lord and please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good deed, Growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for the display of all patience and steadfastness, joyfully giving thanks to the Father." In that large swath of Scripture, we really have three moves that happens this morning that's going to guide our conversation. The first one is Paul's going to look at these people, write these people, and say, hey, let's start with what we know. That's verse 9. For this reason also, from the day we heard about you, all the way to when he says, with all knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, Paul is challenging what the people know. And he's going to tell them that you need to know things you might not know now. And then he moves from what you know into what what you know does for you. And you get a brief clause in the middle so that you may live worthily of the Lord and please him in all respects. So he starts with, this is what you need to know. This is what what you know does for you. And then for all our type A people out there, he's gonna say, I'm not gonna leave you on a limb. This is exactly what it looks like. And that's the last bit. And he gives four participles that tell us if you wanna know what your growth checkbox looks like, write this down, here we go, everybody. And so, this is what you need to know. This is what it does in your life. And this is specifically what growth looks like in the life of people that call Jesus Lord. And so, we begin with the first section of this is what you need to know. And it starts in verse 9. And it says, For this reason also, from the day we heard about you, we've not ceased praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Here's the deal. If we're going to talk about growth, the first thing we need to know is that we need to know that we need to grow. It is impossible to grow if you think you know everything. Absolutely impossible. If you don't acknowledge there's spaces for you to grow up a little bit. In college, I thought I was a good writer. I went to a school that was a lib art school, so I wrote a lot of papers. I fancy myself a communicator for a living, and so I want to think that I'm decent at it. And I remember this moment when I realized that my cockiness got me in trouble. I had thought for years Um, You know, I grew up in that generation Where we really launched AOL Instant Messenger And used to spend all night long chatting with our friends While my parents tried to use the phone But that was also the internet, you know what I'm talking about And so I'm in college And I use it all the time And you get this shorthand that happens And so you know how if you use the word to In an adverbial sense, you add an O to the end of that bad boy T-O-O I would have sworn to you until I remember the moment when I was 19 sitting in my dorm room and I was messaging with a friend of mine, I would have sworn to you that so, S-O, had the same relationship when used adverbally. You just used S-O-O. To the point where I remember getting papers back in college and my English profs would circle it and cross it out and I remember thinking they just don't know they have no idea. Somebody should tell them they're wrong. I remember the moment when, I'm a stubborn man and cocky, I remember the moment when a friend of mine was like, Charlie, that is not how that works. I was like, it is. I know it is. I went to high school. right? Uh, She said, we went to the same high school. I was like, I've been doing it this way for years, which usually is a reason why we don't grow. right? Rhythm and ruts. And, And she said, no, really, that's not how that works. And I looked it up and I realized in that moment, oh my goodness, I'm wrong. You know? For years and years I thought I knew the way this was supposed to work And so I wouldn't change, I wouldn't grow Because you couldn't tell me anything What Paul does is he starts by saying Let me tell you what you need to know If you don't acknowledge that, there will be no growing And so he says, I'm going to tell you What you need to know That you, I'm asking God that you might be filled That he might fill you with the knowledge of his will Let's stop right there and talk about that word fill Because it's an interesting one When we think fill, we think I filled a cup That's not what the word means It literally means I fill something up to the brim, almost overflowing. And the point of why it gets so full is because that word fill doesn't just mean to fill something up. It means to fill something up with so much that it then controls you. And we see this throughout Scripture. That same word used all the time when in the New Testament it talks about people being filled with love or people being filled with jealousy or people being filled with rage or in Acts chapter 5 it says these people are filled with Satan. That's a bad one. And what it says there, what it means essentially is that you're filled so much of that desire or drive that it will in every way shape the actions that follow. Thanksgiving is coming up in a couple weeks. And I don't know how you guys do Thanksgiving, but I guarantee you I have the best way to do Thanksgiving. The best part of Thanksgiving used to be the Cowboys. We're going to let that go. The best part of Thanksgiving is, um, without a doubt, the gravy. 100% the gravy. I have my plate, and I make a gravy moat around the outside, everybody. And everything that goes into my mouth goes through the gravy moat, okay? It's the best way to eat a Thanksgiving dinner. I promise you will thank me. And so I eat gravy, and I eat gravy, and I eat some potatoes on the side, and maybe some turkey. And, and after you are so full, you've been there before, don't look at me with, with judgmental eyes, you've been here. You eat too much, way too much, you unbutton that top button and don't tell anybody, and you sit on the couch. You know what I'm talking about? And you're so full that all you can do is slowly sit there and drip off into, into, into post-Thanksgiving nappy nap time, you know? When Paul talks about being filled, what he's talking about is literally an overflowingness to where you can't do anything else but act out of what's filled you. He's saying his prayer is that they might be filled with the knowledge of God's will. We see this phrase also in Acts, in Ephesians 5.18. It says, don't get drunk on wine, which is debauchery, but be filled by the Spirit. He's not saying don't ever drink. What he's saying is if you drink too much, your actions will be a derivative of what you drank and not the influence of the Holy Spirit in your life. And that is not how Christians are supposed to act. So he's saying, do not live in a way where you're filled with something else that controls you. Be controlled by the spirit of God. And so when Paul talks and he says, you are going to be filled with the knowledge of his will, what he means is that you're going to let what you know, what God is teaching you, fill you so much that it drives who you are and what you do. That it controls you. And then we get in the next phrase, which is a really fun one in the current Christian climate. uh, The knowledge of his will. And that idea of the knowledge of his will, I think, I'm going to camp on it for just a minute. I think the idea of of God's will has, by and large, been really misrepresented in the way that we talk about it in Christian circles. And you might not know what I'm talking about, and that is fantastic. But but we teach the will of God like it's something you have to seek out and find, and God has one will for your life, one purpose for your joy. I, I just don't see it in the scriptures. And I want to clarify something. I think every once in a while, God can call you to specific things. I think he did with me in being a pastor. But for the most part, I think that we're not a room full of Moseses, you know? That's the exception, not the rule. And we teach that the will of God is hard to find, and it's a mystery, and it's the only thing that will make you happy. I think the New Testament, by and large, and really the Bible overall teaches a different story. Because we've let our culture in some way seep into how we read the Bible. And so we've believed this lie that the Bible was written to you and for you. And it wasn't. It is for you, by the way. And it tells you who you are, no doubt. But the Bible, the Bible was written not necessarily to you and for you, but the Bible was written to us to tell us about the nature of who Jesus is. The Bible was written so that we might know our place in the story of God, not that we might be the center of God. So when we talk about the will of God, it is less to do with you and more to do with Jesus, but we find our wholeness in attaching ourselves to the will of God because that's what we're made for. One commentator said, the will of God is the whole purposes of God revealed in Christ. And here's why I'm passionate about this, is I think... And if we play this game of hide and seek and Marco Polo with the will of God in our lives and we pray, God, show me your will, God, show me your will, God, show me your will, and we hear nothing, it leads to frustration. We have two options at that point. We either doubt that God is good and that he loves us enough to tell us, or we doubt that we're doing it right, (laughs) you know? And it's so frustrating. But here's the deal. I don't believe, by and large, I don't believe that for most of us, the will of God is, is meant to be found. I think it's meant to be followed because I think it's pretty clear in the Bible. I think it's the purposes of Jesus. First Corinthians, or I'm sorry, Thessalonians says it like this in 4.3. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. Kevin Young says, De Young says, we should stop thinking of God's will like a corn maze or a tightrope or a bullseye or a choose-your-own adventure novel. And the point here is, what if God's will isn't meant to be found? What if it was never hidden in the first place? He says, my will is that you might be sanct... that you might grow up and exhibit more holiness today than you did yesterday so we can proclaim more of God's goodness today than you did yesterday. One author that I read and liked, Alicia Cole, says God's will is the rule of his righteousness, and his righteousness is the rule of his will. So I think when we as a community have a conversation about the will of God, (laughs) I'm I'm not saying he doesn't call people to specific things. I'm saying by and large, like I'm a dad and my daughter can grow up to do anything and everything she wants, and my prayer is that she stays out of prison. Um... I think God looks at us and says, hey, go and live in places and spaces I've, I've created you for. Or live into your giftings and, and bring my presence into those spaces, whatever that might be. Teach, do medicine, work at Chick-fil-A because it's the only God-approved restaurant. I think there are so many applications. To the, and what it does is it really lends us to believe that Jesus called us to freedom. <laughs> and so what he says is the will of God is that you might be Sanctified. So what Paul's praying for this church is that they might be filled with the knowledge of his will. They might be filled with the knowledge of growing up in Jesus, that they might spread Jesus' redeeming power to the people around them, wherever they are, Colossae, or Rome, or Ephesus. David Platt says, this is God's will to the world, to create, to call, to save, and to bless his people for the spread of his grace and glory among all peoples. This will is not intended to be found, it's intended to be followed. We don't have to wonder about God's will when we've been created to walk in it. So if you come to me and you say, Charlie, I don't know God's will for my life, I'm going to say, this is a good day, I do, (laughs) let's have a chat, you know? So let's walk in holiness and listen to the Spirit and follow, but knowing that God's will is every day that we're called to be sanctified to grow up. And this is why Paul's praying this for the church. He's saying, I pray that you might be filled with the knowledge of God's will, with the understanding that you're supposed to grow up. And he says, this is how it's going to happen in all spiritual wisdom and understanding at the end of verse 9. And so those words, wisdom and understanding, are often coupled together. We did a whole sermon series on Proverbs this summer, and we talked about it a lot. That word wisdom and understanding is kind of the the two-sided nature, the two-sided coin to what wisdom is. Wisdom is not just knowing what to do. Wisdom is not wise if you don't exact wisdom when you're supposed to anymore. And the example that we used, that I used all the time because I'm a baseball guy and it's October, so let's go there, was hitting a baseball. Most athletes are going to say in any sport, the hardest thing you can do is hit a baseball. I don't know if you guys stayed up and watched last night, but it was game six of the ALCS, and I'm a Ranger fan, born and raised a Ranger fan. So my two biggest evils in the world are the New York Yankees and the Houston Astros. And one of them has to go to the World Series. I was so conflicted last night. But there's a guy named um, Altuve, and he plays for the Astros, and I love him because he's 5'6", and he shows the world that short people can do big things. And so... He got, and as a short dude, man, I was just like, go get him, man, you know? He got up in the bottom of the ninth after they blew a two-run lead in the top of the ninth, and he hit. And this is one of my favorite moments in all of sports is a walk-off home run. There's nothing like it, especially if you know it's gone when it leaves the bat. Because you have this moment where the pitch comes and you hit the pitch and you know off the crack of the bat. Like when you shoot a basketball, it doesn't make a noise. When you throw a football, it doesn't make a noise. Not supposed to. When you hit a baseball, there is this magnificent crack that lets you know something happened and makes everybody focus. And then you see this bullet amidst the lights and the cameras fly out of the stadium and everybody knows that you just won the game in walk-off fashion. And for 20 seconds, while this dude jots around the bases, you just celebrate. It is a beautiful sports moment and that's what happened last night here's the deal the hardest thing in the world is to hit a baseball because you could have the best swing in the world but you have about a millisecond or two to swing at the right time when that hundred mile an hour pitch is on the right space and plane for you to actually make contact it does no good if you get the best swing in the world but you don't know when to swing And so when Paul says, I want you to know God's will, he says, I want you to know it in a certain context. I want you to know and be filled with the knowledge of God's will so that you can use it at the right place in the right time. That is my prayer for you. And in what he says about wisdom, I love what Brian McKnight says about it. I mean, um, Scott McKnight says about it. He says, wisdom is learning how to live in God's world, God's way. The idea that it's more than just knowing what it is, it's, it's imploring it in our world. Ellen Davis says, wisdom is living in the world in such a way that God and God's intentions for the world are acknowledged in all that we do. When we defined wisdom last summer in Proverbs in our series, we said wisdom is knowing what to do and when to do it. It's the combination of those things, wisdom and understanding the implication or the outpouring of wisdom because you know who's in control of it. And that gets us to the the adjectival phrase before wisdom and understanding. It says, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Because there's wisdom out there that's not God's wisdom. There's truth out there that's not God's truth. I mean, I think you look around the world today and people are going to tell you things are worthy of pursuing. And they're just not worthy of pursuing. They're not your best good. Money, power, fame, not your best good, even though it seems like that's going to be my best good. Well, let's take one example. That word spiritual there literally is a word that's attached to the Holy Spirit in a possessive form. It means it's his possession that he gives. It's this idea that Paul talks about in Corinthians when he says for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. He's saying I want you to know God's will and when to live into God's will and what it looks like when you live into God's will and that comes from a Holy Spirit-prompted relationship with the triune God. In the first century world, for example, if we're gonna talk about spiritual wisdom, you gotta understand the message of Jesus was way more anti-cultural there than it is here. In the first century world in Rome, they worshiped power and honor. They worshiped power and honor. That's what they stood for. It's what they conquered in. They could expand the vast universe that was the Roman Empire. They could hail Caesar and they could praise his mighty works. They, they worship power and honor and Jesus comes as a carpenter. He could have chosen. It's like Oregon Trail when you can pick who you want to be. Jesus could have done that. He's God. And he said, I'm going to be a carpenter and come into the world. And he said, what if there's another way to live and it doesn't revolve around power and honor but around meekness and service? <laughs> it's really pronouncedly different. And we value service in our culture. They didn't in the Roman culture. And Jesus comes in with this way bigger ask. And, and you think about some of those things and how maybe, maybe what the world says is good, especially in the first century, like power and honor, maybe it's not our best good as a people, not what we were built for, is how I define our best good. And I read an article this week that talked about the effect of power, of absolute power on your brain. Uh, historian Henry Adams, 18, 1900s, he said that he described power Metaphorically, and he said it's a sort of tumor that ends by killing the victim's sympathies. There is a, a psychology professor at uh, UC. Berkeley, and he did a two-decade study with two years of lab and field experiments. and he said subjects under the influence of power acted as if they'd suffered from a traumatic brain injury, becoming more impulsive, less risk-aware, and, crucially, less adept at seeing things from other people's point of view over time point of the article is just that power corrupts and I think we know that but I love reading this because it affirms in me that what God calls us into is a better form of wisdom than oftentimes the wisdom I see people trying to follow in a culture that doesn't reflect or value God's goodness and so Paul's prayer for his people is first you got to know this you have to know that I want you to be controlled by a knowledge of God's will that comes through a relationship with the Holy Spirit that gives wisdom and understanding. And I love verse nine because in that we have this triune God reference. It starts with knowing God through the power of what Jesus did by the Holy Spirit all in one space, press into that as a church. Might that be the very beginnings of how we grow as people following Jesus? And he said, what you know Then manifests itself in what it does in your life, and we get to the next phrase in verse ten. It says, "So that you may live worthily of the Lord and please Him in all respects." And talking about maturity in Christ, let me tell you something. If you're a new Christian, or maybe you're not a new Christian, you just haven't grown much, and you've been a Christian for a long time, or maybe you're a mature Christian. Man, this phrase, this this phrase, trip you up a little bit. Because I'm hoping, I'm hoping. That when you came to follow Jesus, it's because you heard a message of grace. I'm hoping the person that led you into a relationship with Jesus or the people told you you didn't bring anything to the table that God needed, but God called you into the table because of what he did. I'm hoping that it was grace forward that you don't think in some way that you have something of added value to God, but it's only God's goodness that saved you, that called you, that begs you to come into a better life than you could have known without God. I'm, I'm hoping that we live in a grace-forward community, at crossroads, but here's the deal. I read phrases like this, so that you may live worthily to the Lord and please him in all respects. And sometimes I go swinging back to, but I thought I was called into grace. And Paul says this several times in his writings to almost all the churches he writes. Ephesians 4, as a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Philippians 1. Whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. I thought the point of the gospel was I wasn't worthy. How is this tension making itself, manifesting itself out in my life? Because I read those things, and the first thing I think as an individual, as a Western American that lives in meritocracies, is maybe I'm not doing enough to be worthy of God. Let me tell you something, you're not, but that's not the point of this text. What Paul does when he writes about these things, he also balances it with Ephesians 2 for grace you've been saved through faith so that you can't boast at all. Paul talks about it the very beginning of the book, he starts off by saying, I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus by what? Not by me, even though I used to be awesome, by the will of God. He said, you're saints, not because you're awesome, but through or in Jesus. Our positional authority in the family of God is dependent only on God, not us. And so there's this tension between grace and action. And here's the deal. I don't think there has to be. Because I think if we understand the value of grace, and if we see grace as a primary principle, as a foundational principle, then obedience, if action follows, it's based only on grace and not merit. That's really important how we see those things. Because I think when Paul talks about grace, when he talks about living worthily to the calling in this text, he's talking about it in the context of grace being a primary principle. Meaning that if you fully understand grace, it not only calls you into, but calls you out to live out the, the standard of God that we see in the world because we've seen the beauty of grace in the first place. It's kind of like you, you've probably seen, maybe you haven't, but there's a movie called Saving Private Ryan in the first service. I said it's like 10 years old and this is how you know you're getting older, just one of those things. It was 21 years ago, all right? I, didn't, I said 10 and he was like, man, it's a long, lot longer than that. And I was like, oh, I'm getting up there, everybody. You know, My dad sometimes was like, two years ago, I was like, dad, I was four. You know? But um Anyway, so Saving Private Ryan, the end of the movie. If you don't know, all all these men die to save this kid. (laughs) And they don't know why. They're they're told to. They die to save this kid. And there's the one guy that you've learned to like and grown to like the whole movie long. Shocking, it's Tom Hanks. That's his role in every movie. And he's about to be Fred Rogers. So, you know, there you go. Um, So Tom Hanks, the one that we all love, is dying at the end. And he looks up at Matt Damon. And he says, um, something along the lines of earned this. Earn this, all these men that have died. And what, what he means in that moment isn't if you don't live in a certain way, we're going to come back and haunt you post grave. What, what he means in that moment is so many people gave up so much, don't let this go to waste. It's not going to change our status as dead or alive, but here's the deal because you know what it costs for you to be alive, might that change your tomorrow? So when Paul talks about living in a manner worthily to the gospel, what he means is if you truly understand your depravity and the extent of God's love and grace, and if you truly know what it cost him, then grace doesn't just call you into a relationship with Jesus, it calls us to live out his rhythm and ways because we see the beauty of God, because we see the beauty of God. And so the tension then fades away, because we're called by and through grace to live out the message of grace, because we see how beautiful it is. It moves from obligation to joy. Grace changes character because we have experienced immeasurable love and we have seen the immense cost to whom we love. It's the idea that grace calls us to live worthily, not in a meritocracy kind of way, but because we understand what grace is in the first place. So when we talk about the four participles coming up in the next section of our text, it's fully based upon the fact that we understand what grace is when we talk about action at Crossroads, it's fully based on the fact that we understand what grace is and is motivated by the beauty of God's grace in our world. That he would save a wretch like me. So as he's talking, he says, live worthily and then may it please God when you do. In the end of that, may it please him in all respects. Here's something that I sometimes forget, but your actions can please or displease God, you know? And we see it throughout the scriptures. When the people of God live into God's ways and purposes, it can make him happy or it can make him sad, literally. We see it all throughout the scriptures. And I think when you really think about it, you don't change his character, but you absolutely can give God joy or decrease his joys. He doesn't see you live into his rhythms and ways. And we know that to be true because we've seen kids, had kids, no kids, you know? There's a family at this church that I've known for a long, long time, like a long, long time, And I knew him actually before I got here and didn't know they came here. And it was really beautiful when I walked into the middle school youth group room and I saw one of the kids there 10, well, 11 years ago next week, right? And I had coffee or something with one of his kids about a month ago. And um, I saw them here on Sunday morning and I just walked up to the father and I said, hey man, I just want to let you know that whatever you did with those kids, you did a really good job. Like really, they are all the things that I hope my kid will be one day. Like they are... Loving and compassionate and caring, and they think deeply about the Lord, and they still want to run after the Lord. I mean, all the things they do really, really well. And he said, "Thank you." And then on Monday morning, I got an email, and he said, "Hey, I want you to know something." I said that that weighed on me in a good way, and he said, "I want you to know that as I thought about it, I couldn't help but thinking the role you played in that." And he said, "So you said that what I did, I did well." He said, "But I need to know how big of an influence you've been in my kid's life." teaching them to follow Jesus and all the, the, you know, Tuesday night sleepovers and all the time, all the things you did in youth group to help influence them towards Jesus. And two things, one is I will take that, right? <laughs> um, two is that that made my Monday better. And it's not because I was greatest because God is good. That, that made me, ha- that increased my joy. It made me smile. I think the same thing happens with God when we live into his ways. I think we please God and that's okay. Just like your kids do when they live into the ways that you try to grow them up in if you get rid of the whole middle school, high school years, you know? And so he says, live in a way worthy of the grace that you know and have been called by. Understand the primary principle might that influence your every single day. And when you do that, your joy rolls up and makes God happy. And that's a beautiful thing that we know to be true. And so he says, what you know, in some sense it changes what you do. And then if you're type A, you're like, but I need to know what that is. Tell me what that is. God is good, so is Paul. Here's what it looks like four ways. We got four participles, everybody. We get in the last section of our scripture. And it says in the last section of our scripture, bearing fruit in every good deed, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might for the display of all patience and steadfastness, joyfully giving thanks to the Father. So let's break it down one by one with the participles. We're going to go pretty quickly. The first one, bearing fruit in every good deed. We've talked about this at length lately, so we're not going to dwell on it too much. But the first thing he says, if you want to know what growth looks like, it looks like you looking more like the person you're trying to look like. That's pretty simple. Fruit in an agrarian society was something that was always good. And the fruit that you grew reflected two things. One, the kind of plants you were and the soil you grew in. And so what Paul is saying is if you're modeling yourself after Jesus and you're abiding in his truths in person and work, your actions will look more like Jesus's life every single time. And look, it's slow and it's methodical and I'm not saying you're gonna pop out an apple tomorrow. I'm simply saying what Paul talks about, witty means fruit, are the characteristics that we live out that remind people of who God is, fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, go down the list. And so he's saying, if you're abiding in Jesus and you're filled with the knowledge of his will that comes through the understanding of the Spirit's gift and influencing of wisdom, then you will live in a way that makes people see Jesus through your actions every time. And what I'm not saying is if you don't have enough fruit, you're not saved. That's not grace at all. I am saying if I don't see any fruit, I'm telling you, you're not growing. If I don't see any fruit of you looking like Jesus, I can look at you and say that you're not growing in Jesus. And our best good is that you grow, so come grow alongside of me. You cannot divorce action from grace. And so he says, if you want to know what growth looks like, one, it's bearing fruit, and the because is because you know and are rooted in Jesus, not just because you try harder. He says you're going to bear fruit, and you're going to grow in the knowledge of God. I love that phrase, grow in the knowledge of God. Because what we see then is that the pursuit of growth in our faith isn't just about doing, it's about knowing too. We talk about it every week on Sunday morning. This idea that, that we need to press into Jesus because as we grow our breadth and understanding of him, it manifests itself in what we look like. What he's saying is that you just can't serve all day, every day. You've got to press in and study God. So you get to know God. And one thing we have to understand about the knowledge of God is that it's different than the knowledge of everything else. The knowledge of everything else is something that we pursue, that we found, that we developed. Like math, for example. Let me tell you something. Math did not pursue me, okay? Math did not wake me up in first grade and say, come on, let's do some Kumon. If you know what that is, I am sorry, everybody. All right? All right? Math did not pursue Newton one day when an apple fell on his head. Newton had to try to find where gravity was. He had to postulate and theorize and run down the truth that he found. The knowledge of God is different than the knowledge of everything else. The knowledge of God is started with God reaching out to us, not us finding out who God is. When it says in verse 9, fill us with the knowledge of your will, just to get a little technical, that word fill there, that verb is in the passive and it's referring to a direct object in God which means means were filled by the direct object filling us, not by us filling ourselves. Does that make sense? What it means is that God revealed the knowledge of who he is. And here's my point. He didn't have to. He didn't have to. He was full and complete all on his own. And let me tell you why that matters. Is because if we see God, like we see the knowledge of God, like we see the knowledge of everything else, we see growing in our knowledge of God as an obligation If we see the knowledge of God as a gift that God didn't have to give, that he did give us, and we see the knowledge of God as an honor and a gift, and it changes how we run towards it. It changes how we get up in the morning and study. It changes how we see him in the first place. One commentator said, one of the most astounding claims of Christian theology is that God has made himself known. It's the difference between obligation and gift. Paul is saying God gave us knowledge of himself, see that as a gift and sprint towards it. It's Christmas morning as a kid and as a parent, right? As a parent, you're drug out of bed in the morning because there are no gifts under the tree for you and if there is, it's probably something handmade and there are things worth getting up for. That's all I'm gonna say. As a kid, you have this tree full of gifts that somebody made for you and you wake up before you should ever wake up and run there on your own because you understand the nature of what's there. Paul says that you might bear fruit and then that you might grow in the knowledge of God that is every single time the gift of God. And when we talk about knowledge of God, just 30,000 foot view, it manifests itself in a couple different ways. There's general and specific or special revelation general revelation is just like you look at mountains, not here, on pictures and screensavers, um, or in Colorado, and, and you look at mountains and say, I, I, I can't do this. <laughs> Something else bigger than me did this. It's divine revelation of his goodness. Nobody sits in front of a mountain or on a mountain range and says, man, you know what? I am awesome. Everybody sits on a mountain range and says, look at everything around me. And if you do, you have some issues we need to talk through together, All right. And so the, the divine revelation of God is saying, man, look around and look and see evidences for something bigger, faster, stronger than me all around me. And the special revelation is God says, but there's more, there's more depth there. When you get into it, you see beauty where you didn't know there was beauty. You see nuance in the mountain, like compassion and kindness and grace and joy. And he says it's revealed in Jesus and in my scriptures. So he talks through this idea of how we know God as we press in and study. Because we can. Because he's allowed us to. One commentator said, rain, what rain and sunshine are to the nurture of plants, the knowledge of God is to the growth and maturing of the spiritual life. Gotta do both. Gotta do both. So I'm up here saying that if you want to grow, you can't just do. And if you want to grow, you can't just study. (laughs) There's got to be a combination of those two that come together because they're cyclical. Because the more that you know about the goodness of the character of God, the more that should impact our output. And the more that we do the acts of service and see the world shaped around us into the ways of Jesus, the more we want to know this God that's changing things for the better and bringing about restoration and reconciliation in our world. These two things are linked And so we can't be a church that just knows Jesus' jeopardy and says, we're growing. And we can't be a church that doesn't know Jesus' jeopardy and just does and say, we're growing. We have to mix these two things together, you, me, and everybody else, and say, this is what it looks like to grow. We need a good portion of both these. M.T. Wright said, understanding will fuel holiness, and holiness will deepen understanding. Both those elements are present in growing Christians, in maturing Christians. And then Paul continues and says, You're gonna bear fruit and you're gonna grow in your knowledge of God and you're gonna be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. I love this section because so far I can get there and I can say, you know what I can do? I can know about God, and I can serve my community, and right now, it's I, I, and Jesus says, Paul says, God says, by the way, the thing that's fueling you is not push-ups you did that morning, it's my power and my dynamic, there's two words for power in that statement, one, the first one you see, means literally, it's where we get the word dynamite from, it means a lot of it, Okay, So when he says that you're strengthened by or with all power, it means you're strengthened literally with more power than you need. But here's what he makes sure to let you know, is it's not your power, it's according to his glorious might. Another word in the Greek for power. Only used to refer to God and his displays of power. He literally means that sure, it's going to be more power than you need, but it's not yours, it's mine. And that's really important. You know why? Growth is hard. Because growth is hard. And it hurts. Don't let anybody tell you it's easy and it'll just happen. <laughs> My dad is 6'4". My twin brother is 6'4". My little brother is 6'3". Funny. And um, I remember growing up, my dad used to say, you're just like me. Uh, he was a small kid and then he had this huge growth spurt. He said, you're gonna get your growth spurt. I'm still waiting because I don't believe my dad's a liar. I, um, <laughs> I, uh, I remember him telling me the story of, of when he grew. He said that he was like 4'11", going into his freshman year. And then in a few months, he grew a foot, a whole foot, it's almost like half of me. He grew a whole foot in a few months. And, and while that sounds really interesting, he said it was terrible. He said, I was like a baby giraffe. I'd fall over every two steps. And he said, at night, I would sit there with ice all over my body because it hurts so badly. <laughs> if we don't understand. His it, growth is good and it's something we press into, but it hurts so this is why Paul reminds us that, hey, when you grow, and it's painful, by the way, and it's good and painful, because usually good things cost something. Usually when you, when you grow, we forget that there's pain involved. And he said, but when you hurt, understand that you're not upholding and you're not strengthening, but my power, my power that rose Jesus from the dead, my might that created the world from nothing, that's fueling you. I can do nothing just by saying it out loud nothing reminds me more that my words have little to no power than having a small child and lately she just started getting into things and you'll say hey don't do that she'll look at you smirk and then press it harder and I'm like well if you don't understand that I'm bigger than you what I mean how is this gonna go for the next 18 years you know God spoke the world into existence just think about that so we sometimes say catchphrases like God's not gonna give me more than you can bear yes he is the point is not that you can bear it in the first place. The point is that we depend on God to bear what we can't. The point is it plugs us into the greater narrative that we're dependent upon the power of God. That's right. Paul says that I am made strong when I'm weak. Do you know why? Because then I must depend on God and people see the power of God in the middle of my weakness. We have this American narrative that we can do it all on our own and we can't. We're never supposed to. And so Paul says you will be strengthened. You'll be strengthened by, according to, his glorious might. And that is so comforting to me because I got a long way to grow and I know it's not going to be easy and I know I need God in the process. It's encouraging right in the midst of the hard stuff. He keeps on by saying for the display of all patience and steadfastness. And and what he means there is simply that you don't get too old or know too much to stop. It's about doing it until the end. And the end is when you die. (laughs) So he says you're never going to stop growing and knowing. There's never a point in your life when you're too mature. There's never a point in your life when you get to a place where you're saying, yeah, I think I've got this thing down. You are always going to be growing, whether you're three or 30 or 80. Press in. Bear fruit, grow in your knowledge of God, and understand that he supports you and his power gives you the strength in the middle of the hard times. And he ends by saying with our last participle, joyfully giving thanks to the Father. I don't think I have a favorite one, but if I did, it might be this last one, just because I think that joy is the cherry on top of the mature Sunday for the Christian. I think that I've seen people do this, and I don't know if I'm there yet. I've seen, I've seen people go through really horrible situations, and in the middle of horrible, horrible situations that honestly is not their fault, they can look and say, God is still good, and I'm blown away by that. I'm blown away by that. I think there's no greater mark of maturity in the life of a believer than when you go through bad situations you trust that God isn't bad too. There's no greater marker or indicator of maturity in the Christian life than when you look around the world around you and all you see is bad things, we trust that God is still good. We still have joy in the middle of it. So he says, amongst all this, you're going to be people, people that reflect joy because God is good all the time, even when you don't see it. That is the definition of maturity. Again, it's Small Kids 101. We're talking about babies. My kid learned how to turn the TV on and she claps when she does it because she knows when she does that, Daniel Tiger's about to come on. And um, we have this house now and it's full of baby toys. We have ruined the aesthetic of our house because we have a baby and we will take the remote and turn the TV off and she'll start weeping amongst this room full of things that are designed just for her because she can't find anything to be happy about. Are we, are we really going to do that right now? Right? I think when we talk about why joyfulness is an indicator of maturity. It's because even if we don't see any reason to give thanks, we know that there is one. It's beautiful. So he says, if you, if you want to know what maturity looks like, it's understanding who God is, allowing it to permeate who you are every day, and then bearing, growing, steadfastly abiding because you're strengthened by, and then joyfully giving thanks to God because you understand him. It's this beautiful picture of maturity in Christ. I said at the beginning of this thing, That'd give you two reasons why I think growing is worthwhile. And the first one was really negative because 30-year-olds act like three-year-olds. We all see something wrong with that. The second one's way more positive. So I think um, we're in an interesting space in life with a kid that's just over a year old. And it causes you to reflect a lot. So that picture of us at um, Trunk or Treat, (laughs) it was one of our first outings out as a family since we had the kid. I think she was like seven or eight weeks old, give or take. And I remember being so proud in that moment, you know? I remember I took the kid and I, I think I left my wife behind. I just walked at victory laps around the circle so everybody could see what I made and my wife helped with, you know? Um, I, I was just so happy. And, and, and now I have a kid who is in a place. She started walking about a week and a half ago. Um, and that changes the ball game a lot. And so I'm caught in this place of reminiscing about what was, but at the same time, there's really no greater joy than watching your kids grow up, you know, and watching them take steps and seeing them grow. And, and I'm going to end really cheesy, but I love it. Um, there's a book that I read to my kid almost every night when I put her to bed. And, and it's one of my favorites. It's called, If I Could Keep You a Little. Um, and it kind of talks about that tension uh, of growing up a little bit. And, and I'm just going to read a couple lines of it. And it says, if I could keep you a little, I'd hum you lullabies. But then I'd miss you singing at your concert's big surprise. If I, could keep you a li- if I could keep you little, I'd hold your hand everywhere, but then I'd miss knowing, I'd miss you knowing that I can go and you can stay there. If I could keep you little, I'd kiss your cuts and scrapes, but then I'd miss you learning from your own mistakes. If I could keep you little, I'd strap you in real tight, but then I'd miss you swinging from your treetop height. If I could keep you little, I'd tell you stories every night. But then I'd miss you reading the words words you've learned by sight. If I could keep you little, I'd push you anywhere. But then I'd miss you feeling your speed from here to there. If I could keep you little, I'd keep you close to me. But then I'd miss you growing into who you're meant to be. I think when Paul writes his prayer to this church, I think he knows there's something wrong with 30-year-olds acting like 3-year-olds, but I also think he knows the joy of watching people grow up. I think he knows the joy of watching people grow in their knowledge and understanding of God, knowing that when we grow up, we grow God's influence in our lives and subsequently in our world. So he's praying for this church, and he says, your best good is that you might grow, and it's hard, and it takes time, and you need God's strength, but it's worth it. Because as you grow, people see more of Jesus. And there is nothing more joyful in the world than watching the people we love grow up into people God has made them to be. So may we be a church. May we be a church as people come here week in and week out that influence people to grow up in Jesus so that people might see more of who he is. Let me pray for us. God, I'm thankful for your church. I'm thankful that you save, and that you call us to grow from where you saved us. pray this morning as we end in a little more worship, you well up a desire in us to grow. That we see staying where we're at in our relationship with you as not good and growing as the only way to live into the good you've called us. God, I pray that you give us a desire to grow that we might share the desire with our friends and family and watch the influence of Jesus take over our lives and our communities and our churches. I'm so thankful that you're here, that you've called us, that you're making us look more like Jesus. I pray these things in his name. Amen.